Well, church, uh, our hearts are heavy today because a young woman, 17-year-old Hannah Roop, uh, died unexpectedly of natural causes on Tuesday evening, and her funeral was yesterday. Her mom and dad are delightful and very involved in the life of our church, as is her brother. So this is this is a heavy service. We had the funeral again yesterday. So uh, let's, uh, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Okay, oh, Lord, we thank you that uh, we can pray to you, that you're a prayer-hearing God. And we thank you that we come in the name of Christ, um, not on our own merit. And we pray that you would give comfort to those who are hurting um, and that you would show yourself to be the good shepherd at every station in our lives. So we've been singing your praise and we're thankful for that ability. And we pray now that you take the word of God and make application to our lives as we open it. So speak to us by the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a definition of prayer in the bulletin that comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is prayer? Answer, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will, found in the Word, in the name of Christ, with the confession of our sins, and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Prayer is incredibly important. And I'm going to spend the next couple, three weeks, four weeks, talking about this issue of prayer and encouraging us to be more of a people of prayer, a church of prayer. But I'm going to go to a psalm this morning, an attendant passage in Hebrews 4, and just look at some contours to prayer. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrew, Psalm 4. It's also printed in your worship guide. But this is a prayer of quiet trust amidst the uncertainties of life. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness, for you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, the Lord hears when I call to him, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who shall show us any good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. So, so as I look at this psalm, to me, prayer is built upon a remembrance of past mercies from a faithful God who carries us as we understand our position in the Lord. His, his, his our position is past mercies. As, as I was uh, discussing Ephesians 6 for a few months, a few weeks ago, I said oftentimes we come to the armor of God and we jump in, we talk about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, so forth and so on, without dealing with the first clause of chapter 6, verse 10, which says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, which is really referring back to chapters 1 through 3, where Paul hammers out with great masterful strokes our position in Christ. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In love, He predestined us to be born again. So all our position in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, through chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Know who we are in the Lord. And, and, uh, and one thing the devil does, he comes into our lives, he, he, he whispers in our ear, I cannot believe that you did that. Or you said that and you claim to be a Christian. I can't believe you had that period in your life where you, you, you slid away from the things of the Lord. I can't believe. How can you call yourself a child of God? And I said time after time, we, we come into the presence of God not based upon our performance but on the cross. And when you get that down, when you understand the righteousness freely given to you through Christ... It brings joy to your life. And, and, and if, if you do that, if you run to the cross, if you glory in Christ, and when the devil whispers those things, you say, I am his child by faith in the finished work of Christ. And, and you've kind of got that down. He comes in through another side door. And it's the fear of the future. And we should be aware of what's going on without being paralyzed. There, there are a lot of reasons to be fearful of the future. I mean, you have what seems to be a thuggery in Russia going on right now. You have unrest once again in the Middle East. You have airborne viruses. You have drought in California and too much rain in Rhode Island. I don't know, but you, you have all types of things going on everywhere. There are a thousand reasons to be dismayed. But as you look at this psalm, you understand this, that the God who carried us in the past will carry us today and tomorrow that God can be trusted, that his purposes are fixed and true, and we rest in that while we are aware. There, there's a man I respect very much, and he wrote some wonderful books, and then he kind of got into futurism and predicting what's going to happen, and he wrote a book entitled Hurtling Toward Oblivion. How's that for a title? The title is the thesis of the book. I don't recommend the book. Hurtling Toward Oblivion. Because when I, when I read the Psalms, the psalmist says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness, you have given me relief when I was in distress, past tense. You've been faithful. And then he works out throughout this psalm, Oh God, be gracious to me again. Oh Lord, let the light of your face shine upon us. Oh Lord, my righteousness, show me I am yours. Hold me closely. But it's a celebration in the midst of troubles that God has been faithful. See, in 2 Timothy, it's a New Testament book written to a young preacher who was timid and vacillating and fearful of the future and fearful of the approbation of man. And so Paul writes to this young preacher, Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the gospel or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Paul says, Timothy, buck up. Come on, guys. Get with it. God hasn't given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And you step back sometimes as you look at people and you, want, you read church history and you say, I, I, don't, I don't think I could do that. For example, Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, an old man, a disciple of John the apostle, he's an old man. He's brought before the Roman authorities, and they said, Polycarp, all you have to do to walk out of here is to say, Caesar is Lord. We have no desire to put an old man to death by burning. Just say Caesar's Lord and walk away. And Polycarp said this for 80 and 6 years. 
My God has faithfully served and cared for me. How dare you ask me now to deny his name? Do what you will. And they burned him at the stake. And I, I read that. That's just one example in church history. And you go, you know, good grief. And you say kind of sort of, I, I, I don't know I could do that. Don't say that because the same Holy Spirit that fills Polycarp fills you if you're a Christ follower. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this in verse 19. He says, when, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. When you're facing hard times, when you're pushed and prodded and you're in a bad place, if you're even facing martyrdom, the Holy Spirit gives you the words to speak. The same Holy Spirit that undergirded Polycarp undergirds, supports, feels, energizes us. God is faithful. He's given us not the spirit of timidity, but of power and love and a sound mind. This passage is dealt with in 2 Timothy by a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones in a wonderful book called Spiritual Depression. And he talks about having a sound mind and the ability to think, and he gives the example from England. And the Puritan century was 1560 to 1660, and after that, the Act of Uniformity was passed when the Restoration took place. And the Act of Uniformity said in England in 1662 that you could only worship in the Church of England. And if you worship outside the Church of England, you were a renegade and you were against the government. And so the Baptists and the Presbyterians started meeting in fields and caves and barns. And to do so was to be arrested. A guy named John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, went to prison for 12 years because he simply preached the gospel after the act of uniformity. So the story goes, told by Lloyd-Jones, that a 15-year-old girl, a little young girl, was going to an evening worship service out in the woods and some soldiers were standing at a crossroads and they were arresting people and questioning people. And they said to this little 15-year-old girl, they said, uh, where are you going? And she said this, uh, my elder brother has died. And I'm going to hear his last will and testament and to celebrate what he has done for us. And they said, go on. Well, she wasn't lying. Her elder brother had died. His name is Jesus. They were going to hear their last will and testament, the Word of God. They were going to celebrate what he had done for them, the Lord's Supper. And Lloyd-Jones says, that's what I mean when I say a sound mind. That's what we mean when we say, when Jesus says, words will be given unto you. So Calvin had four rules of prayer. And one of those was a heartfelt sense of confident hope. Confident hope. Because God is faithful, He has acted, He is acting, and will, He will carry us through. We can trust Him. And so that's why the attendant passage in Hebrews chapter 4, which talks about our position in Christ. The psalmist says in chapter 1, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, You are God my righteousness. You've given me my righteousness. Verse 3, he says, but, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. He's my righteousness. He hears when I call to him because he set me apart. I am his. 
And so Hebrews 4 in the New Testament book celebrates the goodness of Christ. And then, and then chapter 4 talks about the completed work of the cross. And then verse 14 through 16 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession of faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Then verse 16. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. And that's prayer. That's worship. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne with confidence confidence why because we have a great high priest whose name is Jesus not because of who we are with confidence not because of our works but because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ all over the world today there are Muslims who are celebrating the month of Ramadan for one whole month from sunrise to sunset if you're a Muslim you do not eat and you do not drink and then when the sun goes down you can eat and drink but you do that to achieve merit with the God who is. Ramadan. I was in a bakery recently, and there was a young woman in there, and we started talking, and a lovely 17-year-old. And I asked her where she's from, and she told me, and I said, are you, are you a Muslim? And she said, yes. I said, are you observing Ramadan? She said, yes, I am. And I thought, oh, good grief, working in a really good bakery, a really good bakery, and you can't eat. Why? You're achieving merit. The only merit we have is in the finished work of Christ. God, our righteousness. God, our righteousness. And so therefore, because Christ is our high priest, and He's passed through the heavens, and He's the sinless Son of God, and He's done an act once and for all on the cross for our sins, the writer of Hebrews says, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Confidence. I, Sir and I were just overseas, and for a, I was in Tunisia for over a week. I taught a class to a seminary, and I, I visited some of our cross-cultural workers to encourage them and spend time with them. And so we land in Carthage, and we rent a car from Camel Rent-A-Car in Tunisia. So I thought it was pretty cool. The cheapest car rental place there, Camel Rent-A-Car. So we get this car, and we, we go across the northern part of Tunisia and visit people and come back. But during, during our trip across and back. We were stopped six times by the police. Six times. You'd stand there and all of a sudden a guy would stick, this, you know, a little round circle of red and he said, pull over. So we pulled over and uh, just six times. One time we stopped here and then a mile and a half later stopped again. And uh, I talked to a man who's been there for five years and I said, how often do you stop by the police? He said, I've been here five years. I've never been stopped by the police. I said, I've been here four days and been stopped six times. This is what happens. They pull you over. They've got these machine guns. And they come up, and they start speaking in Arabic. And I go, no Arabic. Then they start speaking in French. And I go, no party vous français. And then I say, English speaker only. That's kind of embarrassing. You know, that's why I say English speaker. English speaker only. And they give the one word they know, uh, document or whatever. And so then inside I start grinning. Because I unzip my pocket and I reach in and get out my passport. And in front of my passport it says the United States of America. And there's an eagle there that's got the wings spread open. And, the, and, and one talon are 
olive branches and the face is turned to that part of its body. But in the other talon are 13 tridents. Symbolically saying, we desire peace, but we can use force. And I realize that a citizen of the United States, that if I am unjustly apprehended, I have every confidence that somebody will intervene for me. And it feels good. And so I give it to him. As I give it to him, I'm thinking, I've got a lot more confidence than a person who has Lithuania on their passport or Moldova or Liechtenstein. Now, those are fine countries, but they're not known for their military prowess. And they get it, and he always says, ah, American. I said, you better believe it, pal. You know. <laughs> so anyway, this, now you, you take that illustration and multiply by 100,000. And that's the confidence we should feel in coming into the throne room of God because of who Jesus is in us. And that's why we pray. That's why we have confidence. We have confidence to enter, to come into the, the throne of grace. It's a throne. He's king. Isaiah 66 says that, that, that this is the one to whom I will look, the one who, who, who is humiliated filled with humility and trembles at my word. We, we, we come before him with reverence and awe. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is eternal God. But there is a craven fear that fears dismissal and fears judgment and fears rejection. We don't have that. We have the fear of reverence and awe and worship and glory and wonder. It's the throne. It's the throne of grace. It's the work of Christ. You see, to truly worship or to pray, our hearts must be continually molded and melted by the wonder of the cross of Jesus. Confidence to enter the throne room of grace by the blood of Jesus. To find help in time of need. What do you do in time of need? You go to the throne room of grace by the blood of Jesus. I was reading the Confessions of Augustine, died in 430 recently, and this is what he says. I just love this. Listen, hear, O Lord, my prayer. It's in the sermon guide. Hear, O Lord, my prayer. Let, let, let not my soul falter under your discipline, nor let me falter in confessing all your mercies, whereby you have drawn me out of my most evil ways. I love this little half sentence. So that you may become a delight to me. Above all the allurements which I once pursued, that, that I may most entirely love you and clasp your hand with my heart, and you may rescue me from every temptation, even unto the end. And I thought, do, do I, can, I, can I say with Augustine, just so I, I, I want to love the, 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 that you may become a delight to me? Above all the allurements that once captivated me, I mean, not, not I do the right thing, I, I face the right way, I march the right direction, all those are good, but can I say that I delight in the Lord? And what I'm saying is that, is that my heart must be continually molded and melted by the gospel of grace to be a man of prayer and worship. Do, do you delight in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Do you delight in the cross? Do you see that Ramadan and efforts and works are worth nothing? That it's all the grace of Jesus. 
Then there's a hymn I thought about when I was doing this. It was entitled uh, Majestic Sweetness Sits Enthroned by a guy named Samuel Stinnett. Just, well, he was offered a plum position in the, under George III, King of England. And he, he renounced that to just be the pastor of a small church. Uh, anyway, he, he wrote this. Majestic sweetness, majestic sweetness sits enthroned upon the Savior's brow. Majestic sweetness. His head with radiant glories crowned, his lips with grace o'erflow. Majestic sweetness sits enthroned. Survey the beauties of his face. Or let me see the beauties of the face of Jesus. And on his glories dwell. Think of the wonders of his grace and all his triumphs tell. Another stanza says, His hand a thousand blessings pours upon my guilty head. His presence gilds or undergirds my darkest hours and guards my sleeping bed. His presence undergirds <clears throat> my darkest hours and guards my, my sleeping bed. And I just step away and go, do I? Majestic sweetness sits enthroned. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that you may find grace and mercy to help in time of need. You know, what do you do? What, what do you do? You go to the one who's able. You go to the one who's faithful. And then the psalmist works this out in a particular situation. It's very interesting. He says this. Be angry. As you understand, God has set you apart. That God is faithful. That God is your righteousness. He says, there's anger, there's, there's anger in your heart. But don't sin. Ponder in your own hearts and on your beds and be silent. Selah. Selah Listed 41 times in the Psalms, it means be quiet and think. Be quiet and think. There, there's, a, there's a time for anger to be addressed, to be dealt with. Don't run away from it. He says, he says but, but when you've done that, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be signed up. If you are over the age of 10 or 9, there are times when you've been misrepresented or hurt or people have spoken against you or physically stolen from you or, or whatever. And, and, and so w when you try to address a situation and you do it in a godly way, then you step back. And when you wake up in the middle of the night, and hey, I do it. I wake up in the middle of the night. And I have thoughts about, why did they do this? Why did they say that? Well, I, and either, either I can go deeper into an angry spirit, this callous, uncaring, or I can ponder on my bed and trust God and be silent. That's it. Those are my options. And the psalmist says, be silent. Think about it. Ponder on your bed. Don't let anger overwhelm you. I was reading a book recently on marriage, and the book said this. It said, if, if, if you're with your spouse and you are getting ready to say something in anger, it is not worth being said. I thought, I wish I'd read that 34 years ago, you know, but it's true. Isn't it true? You know, don't, 
You know what James says? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Luther said God has given us two ears and one mouth to listen twice as much as we ever speak. And then as he continued works it out, this is what he says. Verse 6, he says, There are many who say to me, Who will show us some good? And the psalmist responds, Lift up your light, the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Let us see you afresh and again. I'm worshiping, I'm praying, I'm crying out, God have mercy. And then he makes this incredible statement. I love this, verse 7. He says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. What a statement. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. When their stock return is 23% and their team wins the national championship or their favorite golfer wins the British Open or whatever. You, Lord, that doesn't last, but this does. And I thank you, Lord. In the midst of uncertainties and heartache and false accusations, whatever. He says, as I trust the Lord, as I look to the Lord, as I understand that He's my righteousness, that He's a God of history that acts, as I understand He's set apart the godly for Himself, and He hears when I call to Him, blessed be His name. Oh God, You've given me more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. I will go to bed and sleep in peace because You are God. I read the Psalms and I say, oh, man, they, they got it. They got it. And I pray we do too.